The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So we can talk a little bit about anxiety, which is really ironic um, because I wrestle with anxiety I have for much of my life. I would say the last few weeks have been high points of anxiety activity in my life lately. So it's always a little bit weird to go in and go, "Eh, really, I got to teach about that? What am I supposed to say? Um, So when in doubt, just say the Lord's word, right? Amen. So uh, we're going to be talking about that. Anxiety, uh, I know, is a common topic. I've talked about it here before. Um, I know many of you wrestle with it, too. I want to ask you to, to raise your hands if you ever have wrestled with anxiety, uh, because that would, oh, you're going to do it anyway. I said I wasn't going to have you do that, because I was worried it would trigger your anxiety. But you guys are so anxious, you lifted your hands anyway. So right on. Okay. Um, we're all in here this weekend. Um, anxiety is defined as a feeling of worry nervousness or unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. And I would actually add to that, um, it's a worry about something that you think is going to not only be an uncertain outcome, probably more common, at least for me, it's going to be a really bad outcome. That's typically why you're worrying. That's typically why you have anxiety. When I wrestle with anxiety, it's because my mind will go and explore all the possible worst case scenarios that are out there and and tries to convince myself that they are absolutely certain. That the bad thing will definitely happen and so you better plan for it. You better prepare for it. And so then your mind goes even further. All right, so-and-so is not going to talk to me anymore and that's going to be lame and I'm going to hurt over here and I'm going to... So you even move beyond the event that hasn't even happened yet into what it's going to be like after the event happens if it even happens in the first place. That's me anyway. That's anxiety. Now, Today we're going to be talking about a specific type of anxiety, but before we even go into that, I do want to give a certain amount of disclaimer because um, even as someone who has dealt with that throughout my life as well, uh, I I want to make it clear, we are not the, um, man, just get up early and read your Bible a little more and your anxiety and depression will automatically go away, church. We're not. Now, that could happen. God has done those kind of things for people. God may do that. Um, But depression and anxiety and those things, those are real they're significant. Sometimes they have biological reasons that need to be uh, addressed by a doctor. Sometimes you need professional counseling. Sometimes you need some help. So um, I just want to set a disclaimer right out the gate that says, I understand that topics like anxiety and depression and those kind of things are complicated. And the last thing I'm trying to do is throw out some simplistic response to this stuff. You just go do it and you'll be fine. Because what I don't want you to do is go try to do this, fail. Now you've added to your anxiety and you feel like, well, Christianity doesn't work for me. And that's not what I want. So, so if you're in the throes of that, if you're wrestling with that and you still don't know what to do, man, come talk to somebody, call somebody, get some help. Because that stuff's real and it is not a sign of weakness that you need help. Let me just tell you, the definition of church ensures everyone's already weak and broken. So it is not shameful to say I need help. So if you wrestle with any of that stuff, please let us know. Get a hold of the pastoral staff, an elder, someone, and we would love to be able to connect you with someone who can. That being said, we're going to be talking about a specific type of anxiety and fear and stuff this morning that God's Word is super clear about. And I don't think this type of anxiety necessarily needs 
counsel or medication or any of this. Uh, This is a, a type of anxiety that's built about the way that we approach certain things in our lives and things that we can do to combat it. Um, at the very least, um, the application out of this can help us in any kind of anxiety, honestly. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to stand boldly on God's word no matter what. And, um, and I, I think that the, the word here has some amazing things to say to us. Amen? So in Luke 12, we'll start in verse 13, and it says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Okay, so right out the gate, this is super weirdly random. Like, this is a really weird... So think about what's been happening. This whole scene we've been looking at the last few weeks started at dinner. Remember Jesus is having dinner with the Pharisees? And he's talking with them, and he realizes their heart is to try to trick him. And so he, they're, they're trying to, like, bust him in some different things. He knows they're out to get him. And so he pronounces three woes. Woe unto you. Woe unto you. Woe unto you. And he's calling them out for their way of living, the way that they approach the world, um, their, their hold on religion, their lack of true faith in God, and where they're leading other people. And then remember, there was that one guy in the room, the scribe, who should have kept his mouth shut, and he just couldn't. And he goes... The way you're talking, it's like it's offensive. And he goes, okay, well, I got something for you too. Woe unto you, and woe unto you, and woe unto you. And he has three more warnings for the scribes, the legal leaders, if you will, in that day. And so this all happens, and a crowd's forming, and and now he's around a whole bunch of other people, and he's still kind of dealing with this topic. And so we go into, in verse or chapter 12, Jeremy talked about it last week. He starts talking not so much to the Pharisees and scribes anymore. He's talking to his followers and to the other people are, that are listening, but he's doing it like it's that intentional, make sure they hear it. You know what I mean? And so he starts talking about hypocrisy. He says, hey, beware this. Don't live like these guys. Don't live like them who all walk around and look a certain way, but they're really not. If you weren't here last week, Pastor Jeremy taught on that text. It was a phenomenal, convicting, really important message. I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. But he, he talked about this idea of hypocrisy. He talked about living in the fear of man. Like, hey, don't go living worried about what someone might do to you. Like, the worst thing a man can do to you is kill you, but God can deal with your soul eternally after. Don't fear what man will do to you. Man can't do anything if you're dead, but God can actually cast you into hell. That's the one you need to be concerned about. That's the one you need to be thinking about. And so he's talking about all these things, and then he's encouraged the guys even more, and he's like, and listen, and as you live for that God, When you live in the fear of God and not man, it's going to get you in trouble with man. And so sometimes you're going to be standing before men, in fact, the very men that are there at that moment. And he's like, so when you're in front of them and they're calling you out and accusing you of things, don't even worry. Listen, God will give you the words to say. The Spirit will give you what to say in that hour. Don't worry about that. You just worry about living in the fear of God, living in a way that honors God. So this is what he's saying. And then suddenly a dude jumps in, raises his hand and goes, will you tell my brother to share with me? It's like, what? 
What kind of transition is that? That's so weird. So we, we believe that this isn't necessarily a follower per se of Jesus, definitely not a disciple. They don't typically address Jesus very often as teacher. They usually call him master or Lord. It's usually the other guys that go teacher. Tell us about this. And so this guy steps up and he says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So the situation in that day legally would be this. If your father dies and doesn't leave a will, and let's say there's multiple brothers, then the inheritance goes into the control of the older brother and it's up to him to divide it. And in the absence of a will, if he doesn't want to divide it, he doesn't even have to. No one can force him to do that. He has to give the okay for those things to be divided and separated. So apparently this guy, in the middle of being called out for uh, being hypocrite or hypocrites, in the middle of all this stuff about, hey, don't follow those guys, don't live like this, woe unto these guys who are leading people into hell. This guy's like, hey, will you tell my brother to give me some of the inheritance? It's not fair. And so he's calling Jesus, you can laugh, it's super funny. So he's calling Jesus, it's like the most inappropriate time to ask such a silly question. And so his idea is, something unjust is happening, I want Jesus to fix it. And he, in his mind, he already has an idea, this is what justice will look like. We will divide these things up among the brothers, and he's calling Jesus to do that. And Jesus avoids the whole thing, as he often does. Jesus can be really frustrating at times. Because he doesn't play by our games. He doesn't do everything our way. He knows what he's doing. We don't. And sometimes it's honestly frustrating. It is for this man. Tell him to split it up. He's like, who made you arbiter and judge over me? Language they would have recognized because if you know the old Moses story, when Moses tries to step in in Egypt, they say to Moses, who made you judge over us? So he's using language they understand, but he's clearly not stepping into that role. It's like, that is not why I'm here. And then he goes into something different. He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Now, sometimes we think of covetousness in terms of the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbors, blah, 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 blah. And, and so you can think of covetous as someone has this, you don't, you want that. But, but really the sense that's being used here, covetousness in this sense is an excessive desire to acquire. It's, it's just the want of something, whatever that is. Fill in the blank. Now listen, church, you've got to understand something because this is, we're going to start talking about like money. We're going to talk about our stuff. We're going to talk about our homes and how we live. And that can be like, whoa, 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 preacher man. You stay out of my bank account and stay out of my living room. I'm here. And I even wrote a tide check. So just why don't you just shut on up and get us to lunch? But listen, understand something. This is super important. In the book of Genesis, God created the world in harmony. Not just God individual, God plural. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All three present in creation. And created everything in total harmony. Now, in many of the ancient religions, the gods that they have when they created things, the things that resulted out of that were usually out of chaos or out of clash or out of um, anger or war. Two different gods would fight and boom, the Rocky Mountains emerge because of it or, you know, things like that. But that's not the Bible story. That's not the truth of what Scripture tells us about what happens. When God created heaven and earth, 
God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit created everything in perfect harmony. It was perfect. And then on the seventh day, God did what? Ever wondered why? Why did God rest? I mean, God doesn't have knees. God doesn't have muscles that get tired, knees that get worn out when you're on the ground doing something. God doesn't get exhausted. God doesn't get worn out. Oh, Jesus, when he became man, yes, we'll see some things about that in a little while, but that's not what's happening in Genesis. What's happening? From the very beginning, God's showing us certain rhythms, certain patterns, certain ways of living that are not only um, good for us, but it's just the way things are designed to work. Jesus created the world to work in a certain way. And he created you and me in a certain way. That we will only be fulfilled, really, in certain ways. We will only find joy, really, in certain ways. Oh, we can find little stopgap measures here and there. There's things that make you feel good here. There's things that make you feel good there. But ultimate satisfaction, ultimate joy, ultimate fulfillment, all of those things are only found in certain ways. God knows this, and he created us in this way. And then the earth fell. And now, in Luke, here stands Jesus. And don't just pencil him into Rabbi Jesus walking the earth. This is the man, this is the God who created the earth and knows how it's supposed to work. This is the same one. And so what he's saying here is not just random commands. Do this, don't do this. And what he's not doing here is saying, those things are fun, but Christians don't do them, so leave that alone, or or any of those other kind of arbitrary rules. No, no, no. Jesus knows the way we were created, and he created the world to operate in a certain way. The Jewish people would call it shalom. And he's calling people to shalom. You've got to know, Jesus is calling us to peace. And now he's addressing the exact opposite of that, anxiety. Things that are leading towards anxiety. And so you've got to think about this as we're going into this. How many of these things that Jesus is talking about are we wasting so much energy, so much time, so much emotion, so much resources pursuing that in these very things? And Jesus is saying, listen to me, I know how this works. Some of us have already learned some of this stuff the hard way. So he is calling us to joy. Know this. This is the creator of everything who knows how everything is supposed to work. You can trust him. Amen? Say, I can trust him. So, Heritage, I'm, I'm asking you here. I want you to lean in on this. Because we're talking about stuff. Life is not, what does he say? Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. There's a pastor named Brian Loritz, and he says this. He said this at a conference I was at one time, a leadership conference. He said, one thing that very few uh, people in Western culture have ever wrestled with is the concept of enough. How much is enough? And Jesus is going to push us on this to some degree. Because pursuit of more does not lead to peace. It leads to anxiety. It leads to all kinds of things. Like it's, it's never, like stuff is never enough and we know this. So, so a few years ago, um, I, I used to have this, this old Subaru 
um, green Subaru Outback. I loved my Subaru Outback. It was a great, great car. I got it used, but it was in great, great shape. And I drove that thing into the ground. I've always had older cars, always had kind of, you know, cars that if mud gets in the floorboard, I don't care. It doesn't matter. It just actually blends right in, you know, that kind of a thing. And, um, and so I had this Subaru, and I drove it into the ground to the point that my mechanic, who I'd been going to, this one guy forever, actually told me, Jeff, I am not going to work on your Subaru anymore. It's time to buy a truck. You're using a car thinking it's a truck. It's not working anymore. You need to get a truck. So I went and got a truck. Good friend of mine helped me out, got a, got a good deal on it, and through all these other crazy series of events, I actually ended up getting something I'd never had before. I got a brand new truck. It was nice. It was really nice. I had some people even ask, com- make comments about it when I got it. Ooh, did Pastor Jeff get a raise? Got some flack for that. I really did. And, and it, was not, it was nice. It had leather interior, which I'd never had before. And as a fisherman, that's actually kind of nice. As a dog owner, that's super nice. And I, I now look at leather interior as like a requirement. And it had Bluetooth. Like I could talk to it. it was, I was like, man, this thing's nice. That was five years ago. Now, just recently, something was wrong with my truck, so I had to take it in, and they were going to work on it, and because of my warranty, my good friend over there hooks me up, and he says, hey, here's a car that you can drive while the truck is actually being worked on. Ooh, it was nice. It had massagers in the seats. (laughs) Did you know that was a thing? Did anyone here know you could get a car with seat massagers? I'd never come in the house, just sit in the driveway all day, just (laughs) not coming in, honey. Can you bring dinner out here? It was so nice. The, the Bluetooth, the, you know, the voice to text, in that it actually worked. I don't know what it is with mine, like Siri does not like my voice in the truck. I could say, hey, I'll be home at 10, and it's like, I'll be home in 2030 is somehow what goes through. I don't, I don't know how that works. But, um, but this one like really worked. The, the, oh, it was just super, super nice. And then I get my truck back, and I like my truck. I do. I'm, I, I like my truck. But I'm driving back, and I'm like... There's no seat massagers in this thing. I wonder if you could add the air-conditioned seats. My back feels a little sweaty. I don't know if that's any good. But see, you see what happens is you start noticing something else, and what does it do? It breeds discontentment in the things that you already have. And so now your attention's turned away from the thing that you have, and your attention's turned towards the thing that you don't have now. But there's always another thing. There's always another development. There's always a new... Like, it, it, it's, it's never, ever enough but it feels so good when you first get it though, doesn't it? So there's those moments of pleasure. I mean, even a new set of clothes or something like that can make you feel good about yourself for a little while until it goes out of style. I still wear cargo pants. I know, I know. You guys mock them online, you young people. I don't care. It's extra pockets and that's handy. (laughs) And it's all I have. But it's just never enough. It's always changing, right? And, And Listen, church, Jesus wants us to lean into this and really consider, like really almost do the math and think about the way that we're living and think about the things that are here and think about why we have what we have. So this is Jesus calling us to joy, not projecting condemnation on us or, or guilt for what we have. You with me on that? Okay, so calling us to? This is not about... Guilt. This is not about, I don't think you're with me, but all right, here we go anyway. All right, so verse 16. So he tells them a parable saying, 
The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store up all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, the goal, obviously, based on the last sentence, is about being rich toward God. That's where we're going to go. But let's talk about this idea of like what's going on in this story. Because there's some key things here that I think are super important to understand moving forward. The first thing is this. I want you to notice something. What does Jesus say increased? It wasn't like this guy built some empire. Who does he actually seem to give credit to in the story? It says... And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. He, right out the gate, points to something that is outside the ultimate control of that man in order to produce. Oh, he can go to school. He can learn to be a farmer. He can work longer than all the other guys who might go to bed early and not work as hard. He can water better. He can get better soil. He can get better seeds. All of those kind of things. But in the end, he's trusting on God to grow this stuff. So right away, we see this principle that we have to understand from the very beginning. As followers of Jesus, the people of God, we are not owners. We are stewards. And that's very different. Everything we have, James tells us, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. And you go, no, wait, wait, that's not right. Because I work hard. Okay, but think about that. I mean, like when I was young, I was decent at basketball. I could have worked harder than anybody spent infinite hours in the gym, worked harder than anybody ever seen, just practice, 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 get the best coaches, all that kind of stuff. But no matter what, I'm born and gifted a certain way. I will never be able to shoot like Steph Curry. I will never be able to dunk like Michael Jordan. I will never be able to bounce from team to team like LeBron James. I will never be able to do any of that kind of stuff. Like I'm just, God's wired me and gifted me a certain way. And you go, but, but I, but I know I went to school and I studied and I do this. Okay. But what kept you from being born? Let's say in Uganda where a master's degree in Uganda. Yeah, that might be better, but there's a lot of people in Uganda who can go to school, go through university, get a master's degree. And when you look at the difference in their living, you're like, man, I don't, I don't really even see it. Doesn't guarantee you a job whatsoever. Like why weren't you born there? Only by the grace of God. That was a gift and and the ability to work. Why weren't you born handicapped? Why weren't you born with disabilities? Why weren't you born in different areas? Even the opportunities that we have, that we were born here with the school systems we have, or the the intellect you have, or even the things that were inherited from your parents, all of those things are designed by God. Those are all gifts of God. We have to understand that we are stewards of the things that God has given us. These are not things that we've done on our own. And yet this man, look at how he approaches all of this stuff. What does he say to himself in his little soliloquy as he's talking about all of his stuff that he has? He says, I will do this. I will tear down my barns. Notice the pronouns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. You relax, eat, drink, be merry. He didn't think about the whole tomorrow we all die. I guess Dave Matthews hadn't done the song just yet, but. In the whole time, what's he doing? 
He's not acknowledging God with anything that he has. He, he's living as an atheist. Whether he would be a Jewish person who believed in God at that time or, or whatever, he's at least a functional atheist. Claiming belief, maybe, but living in such a way that doesn't consider God, doesn't think about God, doesn't think about why God gave you that, or doesn't even consider the fact that it came from God and you should be thankful towards God in that. There's no idea of stewardship. There's no idea where it came from. Listen, hear me, church, hear me. There's nothing wrong with bigger barns. There are texts in the Bible that tell you to do that. There's nothing wrong with building and saving and planning towards the future. There's scriptures about that. But to do that without ever, and especially without first coming and going, so what does God have for me? What does the Lord require for me? Why has God given me in the first place these things? What am I to do with this? means that you're living as an atheist and you're living essentially as you are the God. So these are for me. This is about me and my kingdom and my empire. And the Bible says that's foolish. And again, remember, in Scripture, fool isn't the insult that it is today. It's an actual description for those who live in such a way that they are making decisions that lead to their ultimate demise. And so he's saying this is foolish. This is a bad idea. Because this does not lead to the kind of peace. It's, it doesn't lead to a life lived the way God designed you to live. You are going to be unfulfilled somewhere down the line. It's foolish. It's a bad idea. This is what he's called to. And so Jesus goes into that. Verse 22, he said to the disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Life is not the, communicate, or the accumulation of things. And so Jesus argues against fear and anxiety with these things. When he's saying, listen, don't freak out about all this stuff, especially if you do live in such a way where you're putting others first. There's a temptation for that. So if, I'm, if I become generous and if I give, if I, if I give stuff away, what if I need that later? Or what if I miss out on something over here? Wait, what do I do with that? And he's like, listen, listen, listen. Don't fear. Don't have anxiety. Don't allow thoughts on these things to overcome you. Don't do it. And he argues against this in three different ways. The first, he says, understand your value. Look at verse 24. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Let's talk about ravens. Ravens are trash birds. I mean, they're rats with wings. That's what they are. Nobody goes bird watching for ravens ever, ever, ever. So I, I like to go fish up at Klamath Lake, which is also a very popular place for bird watching. And so you'll see people up there all the time, and half the time they totally look the cartoon uh, thing, like they get the hats and the binoculars and the whole thing, and it's it's shameful. And if you're here, I apologize, kinda. But um, but we totally make fun of them, like we just do. Like I think they make up bird names. It's a ruby thwarted quester will. <laughs> just all that, like they get all excited. Oh, there's another one. And, all and I know it's like, cool, it's a hobby. It's your thing. Never seen anything about it. Oh, it's a raven. Doesn't happen. Nobody looks for that. It is a trash bird. It doesn't even hunt. It's a scavenger. It just kind of finds something somebody left behind. Leftovers, trash, whatever. It's not out there hunting. It's not out there doing anything. It brings nothing to society. Cleaning up carcasses, maybe. All right, get out of here, technicality. But 
It's a garbage bird, and yet it's totally taken care of. Totally taken care of. In fact, God says, that's not random, by the way. I feed them. Never thought about that? That garbage bird, with all of its history, like it's a symbol of bad luck historically. Uh, the Koran taught that it taught Cain how to bury Abel. Native Americans think it's a trickster god that just fools people. Um, it's a supernatural, or supernatural messenger of doom in The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. Even Maleficent is at Sleeping Beauty. Her little cohort there, her servant, minion, whatever it is, Raven. Garbage bird. Nobody's ever liked ravens. God's like, even that, I feed them aren't you worth more than that? It's an argument of less to more. It's like, if a nasty raven, like the kind of bird that if it was in your yard and the kids went to touch it, you'd be like, ah, it's nasty, honey, get away from that thing. If that I feed, don't you think I'm going to feed you? Don't you think I'm going to take care of you? Don't have fear. The second one, understand your power. This is a little more in the negative. Verse 25, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? He's like, look, all that worry, what's it really do? Does the worry extend your life, or is death coming anyway? I mean, if it really is incurable cancer, is the anxiety going to fix that? Now, I know when you're in the middle of anxiety, you're like, that's still not helping me. We'll get to that. But this is what he's saying. Look, the anxiety's not solving anything. The fear's not solving anything. And then number three, understand your position. Verse 27, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And and here, you have to understand, he's talking about position here, because then, well, really, in, in many ways as it is today, the way you dressed was an indication of your position and your power. He's in the presence, remember, of all these Pharisees and legal guys who would wear their big flowing robes to make sure everybody knew how spiritual they are and all this stuff. And he's like, look, that's not where it's at. Don't worry about that. It's not, stop trying to find your identity and your prestige in the clothes that you wear. It's, don't worry about that. I mean, God takes care of flowers. God takes care of all of these things. And God has always been your covering. Even from the Genesis fall account, God has always been the covering for men. God's got you. And then there's a summary in verse 29. And do not seek what you are to eat. Now, it's not as obvious in our language, but in the original language, there's a really intense emphasis here on you. He's talking now really specifically to his disciples with an intentionality. Everybody else is listening, but he's narrowing the scope as this whole thing comes around. And he's saying to them, but for you is what he's saying here. Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. He's saying, listen, you're not like them, so don't be like them. Yes, I know what the nations of the world do. Yes, I know what everybody else around here does. Yes, I know all that stuff, but you're different. 
Just like he did with Israel in the Old Testament. Look, I know what the rest of the world does, but here's how you're going to live. I have something different for you. You're different. Live this way. Don't worry about this stuff. Don't set your focus on these things. Don't be like everybody else. You live this way. Okay, awesome. How? Like, that's great. On paper, I can see how that all pencils out. Like, yeah, great idea. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. Don't be afraid. Live different. Fine. But how? Like, how do I do that? Because when you're in the middle of the fear, or you're in the middle of the anxiety, or when the bill's overdue, or when all those things come, like, how do you, how do, you do that? How do you make your mind do that? Do you just, just stop thinking about it? Is that the idea? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Okay, so I just think about something else? Because that doesn't work for me. It's like that whole don't think about a 100-pound gorilla or whatever the whole thing is. 100 pounds, that's not very much. I could take a 100-pound gorilla. That's like a 400-pound, whatever it is. Don't think about a gorilla. Now, all of you are thinking about gorillas. You're probably thinking about little gorillas because I said 100-pound gorilla, but you are. That's not what the Bible ever teaches. The Bible has never taught us, just empty your mind. Just don't think about that stuff. That's not the Bible. So many people think that the Bible is like something that, that we have that like takes our brain out of the equation and we just don't think anymore. It's not true. It's very logical. It's very intellectual. It's very in-depth. There's a lot of things to think about, but it wants us to think about things that are true. So think about Romans. Be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. Change the way you think. It's not stop thinking. Think differently. What does Philippians say? Hey, set your mind on these things that are above. Set your mind on things that are beautiful, things that are true, things that are pure. Change the way you think. Don't get consumed with some of these other kinds of things. And so there's something awesome. So you go, okay, so what are you telling me then? This is like some accentuate the positives. It's like some Mary Poppins spoonful of sugar garbage. Like, what are you talking to me on this stuff here? Because that just seems like some really lightweight advice when you're in the middle of worry. No, no, no. There's something so big in that sentence. There's something so massive that Jesus is trying to, to bring our attention to. Listen, I want you to understand, as you read through all of this stuff, there's a progression. He goes, God does this. God does this. Don't you know that God does this? Don't you know that God does this? You be different. Why? Because right there in verse 29, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, but what are the next words? Your what? Father. He's like, you have a father. That's what you need to remember. That's what you need to think about. That's the antidote to worry and fear and anxiety. It's not about clearing your mind. It's not even necessarily about just thinking about pure things. It's about understanding you have a father. And look how he he even pushes down into that in the very next verse. He says in verse 31, instead seek his kingdom, these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. Those are super intimate, tender words. Fear not. Your father's good pleasure is to give you the kingdom. Now I want you to think about how this works out. Remember, who, who's saying this? Anybody? Who's saying this? This is Jesus, creator of everything, God himself, God the Son, and he's been through some things already. Let me give you an example how this plays out that hopes, hopefully will open your eyes to some of this if you haven't seen this before. Can we put this first text up in Matthew? 
Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now this is the temptation in the wilderness of Christ. If you grew up in the church, you know this story backwards and forwards. And when I learned this story, I kind of learned it from this perspective of, okay, when temptation comes, how did Jesus fight temptation? He had some Bible verses memorized. So you just say those Bible verses and it's almost like this supernatural, like that's how you chase the devil away way. This is so much bigger than that. Look what's happening here. Jesus led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So this is God in the flesh. He gets tired now. He gets hungry now. And this is real. This isn't hyperbole like some of the parables you're going to see in a minute. This is real. 40 days, 40 nights, he's hungry. And so Satan comes to him, and what does he say? If you're really God's son, then command these stones to become loaves of bread. What is he saying here? Hey, Jesus, if, you're, if you really have a good father, if you're really the son of God, what father would leave you in a place like this for 40 days? You're here to save the world. You've been in the wilderness for 40 days. By the way, where are your followers? Nowhere to be seen. You're alone, you're hungry. Is that what a good dad would do? This is the same guy who, by the way, Jesus, that is, who will later teach what? What father, if his child asks for bread, would give him a stone? Here he is in the wilderness, surrounded by nothing but stones. What Satan's saying is, you can't trust him. I love how Russell Moore puts this. Russell Moore said it this way. Listen, guys, Satan is not trying to trick Jesus. He's trying to adopt Jesus. He's trying to make Jesus go, I no longer can trust the provision that my father has for me. I got to figure something else out. He's saying, I know what's best for you, Jesus. I know how you can get food. You're hungry. Your father's not going to take care of him. You come to me. And so what does Jesus say? He answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but what? But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Hmm. So what does that mean? He's, he's saying that his, his sustenance, the thing that he wants to hold to right now is every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's hold on to that and let's see what else happens. Go to the next one. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, Throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So here's Satan. Okay, every word of God, that's what you're holding to? Every word of God? Okay, Jesus, well, you know what? The word of God says that the good father would never let you struggle. You're not going to suffer. You're not going to get hurt. So let's find out. Jump. Let's see if he's good. Force the issue. See what happens. Instead of relying and trusting in his word, do something and challenge him to act. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Another scripture that he does quote. So now the last one. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. What's he doing here? Jesus. Messiah, 
king, ruler. God sent you down here. You're the son that's going to rule and reign. So how's that working out, Jesus? You're in the wilderness. You haven't seen that ragtag bunch of idiots that you've got following around there. Like, they're not in the, the picture. You don't even have food. You have no kingdom. You have nothing. Listen, I can take care of you. You want this? I'll give it to you. I'll provide for you. I'll be your father. I'll be the one that takes care of you. You can trust me. You can have what I will promise you. You don't need to worry about that because he's not giving you anything anyway, clearly. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship and love your God and him only shall you serve. Do you see what's happening here? It's the same temptation that Adam and Eve had in the garden. Did God really say that you can't eat of that tree or you'll die? No, 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 no. Look, look, here's how it really is. That tree is actually really good for you. And if you eat it, you're going to be just like him. And he knows that. So he's withholding from you. And he doesn't want you to have that kind of pleasure. He doesn't want you to have that kind of joy. He doesn't want you to have that kind of stuff. God is really, he's selfish. He's self-motivated. And ultimately, his ultimate concern is not your joy, but his. So don't trust him. Have the fruit. That was the temptation. Don't trust the Father. Don't trust God. That's what's happening in every single one of these. That's the actual issue that's going on here. And this, this idea that the antidote to fear, let me, let me give, you, give, give it to you this way. The antidote to fear about your housing situation, let's say. Let's see, you don't know where next month's rent's going to come from. You don't, the landlord's threatening to evict you. You don't know what to do. You can't sleep at night. You can't find a job. You feel like you're at the end of yourself. You don't know what to do. The antidote to a person in that situation is not to come alongside of them and just give them random encouragement that says, it'll work out. Or, well, there's Habitat for Humanity. Or there's, like, that's not the ultimate antidote. Those are all stopgap measures. The ultimate antidote is to come to a person in that situation and say, you have a father. You have a father who loves you who cares for you, who has promised you. Even in scripture where it says, thy word have I hid in my heart, talking about how Jesus used the scripture there. Well, what does the word tell us that we hide in our heart? It's not that it's these magical incantations that we can refute Satan by just spewing out Bible verses randomly necessarily. It's the word of God tells us what? That we have a father and that we can trust him. And then we don't have to bite on the temptation that Satan's coming because that is false joy. That's not true hope. It's not going to last. And that God loves us and cares for us. He is not withholding for us. He designed the world. He knows the way it's going to work. He knows what's best for us. And he promises to give us the kingdom. Look at that next verse again, verse 31. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Fear not. And see, you notice, remember that progression? It's all about God, and then it's you have a father. And now look at the intimacy of these words. Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's like, Jeff, you are so worried about such and such bill. You're so worried about what someone thinks of you. You're so worried, and and your, your anxiety, you're eating yourself up with all this stuff, just worried, worried, worried about all these little things. And I want to give you the kingdom. But I don't see it right now. Trust me. I'm your father. I love you. I care for you so much that I sent my son to the cross to deal with your biggest problem. So many of the arguments in this text, if you think about them, 
if you think about logical arguments and stuff, they're arguments from lesser to greater. So like, if he takes care of this, surely he'll take care of this. If he clothes this, surely he'll clothe this. Well, now think of it in the reverse. If he would send his son to die on the cross for your sins when you are yet an enemy with God, don't you think he'll make sure that you have some food? Don't you think he wants to care for you? Don't you think he wants to take care of you ultimately? Don't you think he's actually for you and looking for your greater good? Clearly he's not withholding. If God was withholding from us, he should have never sent Jesus. But we have a father and he loves us and wants to give us the kingdom. And he says, that's what you pursue. Not the storehouses for storehouses sake, but your stewards of things in pursuit of the kingdom of God. And you go, okay, then what does that look like? Verse 33, this is kind of intense. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Now, right away you can read that and go, come on, Jeff, do some explaining and fix that. And I can a little bit. It is hyperbole. Um, there's a, there's a, a pushback. We talk about the prosperity gospel all the time, that God wants you to be wealthy. There, there's a pushback against that, the poverty gospel, that you should get rid of all your possessions and live possession-free, and that that's a mark of true spirituality. Um, they're both lies. They're both false gospels. They're not Christian doctrine, either one of them at all. Um, God, in Scripture, tells you to do things like save an inheritance for your kids and your children's children. God talks about, he uses like the ant and talks about planning towards difficult days or planning towards winter and storing up. Like there is a ton of stuff in scripture about just being wise stewards and making sure that your families are taken care of and all those kind of things. There is no reason for us to be guilty about a possession we have. I mean, think about it. If every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, if God gives you wealth, I don't think he's giving you something that you might feel guilty about it. The issue is stewardship and what is it that you're doing with it? Because yes, there's tons of scriptures about good stewards of money. There's also 2,103 verses about taking care of the poor, taking care of the widow, taking care of the foreigner, taking care of the oppressed. 2,103 verses about using the position God's given you to bless someone else. And why? Why is that? Is that just like God's random welfare system? That, what is that? Is that communist? Is that Marxist? What is that? No. If we are blessed, and I just, for our country, like there's some people that would do like this whole American guilt thing on what we have compared to anybody else. I've been to Africa. When I went to Africa, like my truck's amazing in Africa, trust me, right? But this isn't about guilt trip. This is about just reality check on why we have the things that we have. Because here's what can happen. We had neighbors that, that just moved into the neighborhood and uh, decided we'd practice what we preach, and we invited them over for, for dinner one night, did a barbecue for them, cooked some really nice food, went to Cartwrights and got our meat. You guys been to Cartwrights yet? Legit Cartwrights, right? And I did these burgers up too, man. You're like, burgers? I thought you cooked them good. You didn't get them steak? No, no, no. Hear me out. I got some high-quality meat, and then I mixed in like uh, feta cheese and I bought some of their bacon, none of that garbage bacon crumbles, I mean like real bacon that I fried myself, chopped that stuff up, put that in there, Lipton cup of soup, couple of eggs, y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Everybody's like, hurry up and wind this up, I'm hungry. Mixed all that up, cooked up some burgers, like we we really went all, we really wanted to bless this new family that lived right across the street, Um, brought them in, 
They're moved up here, don't know a soul in the valley. Um, great time just hanging out with them. Didn't pull them in and make them sit down and do Bible study. Didn't do anything like that. But the one thing we did do was pray. When it came time to eat, we just said, hey guys, I mean, you guys know what I do for a living, and then you know, you know who we are, and, and we're kind of old-fashioned this way, so you guys mind if we pray before we have the meal? No, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. And so then in our prayer, here's what we did. We just said, Lord, you've blessed us so much, and you've given us so much, and now we have this opportunity because of how much you've given us to just bless these people next door that we just met. And so we just First of all, I want to say thank you that you gave us this. Recognize what has been given us by God. And then we just want to be able to give this as a way of, of honoring you and blessing our neighbors. And so the idea is this, is what? I'm using these things, even in that moment, in something as simple as making my next door neighbor a burger to point to the kingdom of God and to tell them about, hey, this is where this came from. By the way, you can't tell this story. They're going to be at church here in two weeks. So shh. But... Like, that's the point. Like, your homes, like, we're blessed. So use them. You're like, well, I don't have as much as the other person. Well, okay. In the scriptures, though, there's the person who was given one talent, the person that was given five talents, the person who was given ten talents. Some have more than others. Then just be generous with what you have. Be good stewards with what you have. But don't let the things you have end with you. That's the problem. That's why the guy's getting called out in this passage. Not because he was wealthy. God gave him the wealth. He's being called out because it became all about him. I'll just pile all this stuff up now, and later, easy street. And God's like, no. I love, there's a quote by St. Augustine, one of the early, early church fathers. And he said this about that man in the parable. He did not realize that the bellies of the poor are much safer storerooms than his barns. And then here's the other part of that. What is it that Jesus is saying about this stuff? Look at verse 33. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fall or fail, excuse me, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. And this is the beauty of it. You're not giving anything away. You're storing it. Jesus is saying this stuff has eternal impact down the road. And he's calling us not only to a better and more joyful life now, but he's calling us to invest in the actual life that matters. And there's a lot of people that are going to be filthy rich in our day and age and then lived in abject poverty away from the presence of God for eternity after because they did not recognize the kingdom of God. And he's saying, I don't want you to do that. I'll tell you guys straight up, confession time here. I have hardly ever taught about money here. I avoided it like the play. I mean, I don't, it, w this is why we teach the way we do, by the way. You go through, you can't avoid it. It's just there, right? And all of you guys, there's so many Bible students in here. If I skipped this text, I would get phone calls and emails. So this is why we teach the way we do. You face everything. But in general, I have tried to avoid topics of money probably more than anything else in the history of our church. Ten years and two weeks now, I bet you I've taught about money like five times out of I don't know, six, seven hundred sermons in the last ten years. And the reason is really simple and appropriate for our text today. Fear and anxiety. Fear and anxiety. 
fear of man, people-pleasing, fear, and anxiety. Because so much of what gets talked about in money in the church, in the world around, is so corrupt and so terrible and such an abomination. And me, in fear, wanting you to think well of me, go, then I'll just stay away from that topic. I don't want to offend anybody and I don't want to touch any of this stuff. And that's wrong. That's a sin that I have to repent from. Because this is God's word calling us towards joy. Don't worry, I'm not working on a money series in the background right now. But I am telling you, this is true. And we are riddled. Our society is riddled with fear, worry, and anxiety. And this is one place right here where we absolutely, without prescription or without a doctor visit or without any of those things, we can have an impact into the quality of life we experience now the spread of the kingdom right now in our day and age, but also our future eternity with God if we will become people who are generous. Heritage, be generous people. Strategically generous. Using the things that you have to intentionally point to Jesus, to point people to the kingdom of God. But if possible, lavishly generous because we serve a lavishly generous God. And point people to him. But do know, do be warned, verse 34, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You either will own stuff or stuff will own you. And so we are called heritage to be stewards of what God has given us, to live with the kingdom in mind and to pursue the kingdom of God with the things we have, not apologize for what we have or be you know, guilty because we have blessings or whatever it is, but to go, okay. Awesome. God has given me some amazing ammunition to affect the kingdom of God right now. Let's go to war. And that's what you do with it. I'm telling you, it's fun. It's super fun. So can I just pray blessing on you guys on this and may the spirit work. And I want to encourage you guys, man, go home. Talk as a family. Do the math. Plan. Strategize. All right. I just talked to somebody between services. They were like, oh yeah, we're, we just met a neighbor we'd never talked to before. We're doing a block party now. Awesome. Go do that. Strategize. Plan. How can I be a steward of what God... I've seen God's word. Now I want to go be a doer of God's word. So how can we do this? I'm telling you, it's fun. It'll be fun. And it'll pay off in the end. Amen? Will you stand with me and can we pray? Father, I now ask that your spirit would combine with your word and you would give each person understanding into their own uh, lives presently, whether that be conviction, comfort, motivation, whatever it is uh, that, that you know that we need. And I pray, God, that you would help us to live these things, that we might seek the kingdom. Father, I want to pray against condemnation, that feeling of guilt or shame Lord, that does not come from you. And, and Lord, for anything I may have said that causes that in the hearts of anyone here, Lord, I repent of that and pray, God, that that would not be what sticks. But Father, the things that are of you here, Father, may you use them. May you bless the people of heritage. I pray, God, that this church would be known as a generous church. I pray, Lord, for our church leadership, Lord, as we're about to start budget meetings just next week, planning the, the budget for next year, Lord. May, may our use of finances honor the things that we say we believe and, and, and hold to be true. May you give us wisdom in how to steward things corporately. I pray, God, for the people here of the church. May they be generous givers to this church body, supporting the ministry that you have created and that you are leading here. 
And then may, Lord, the people here of the church be generous givers outside the walls of this church, looking for opportunities to bless those who, who need. Lord, may we feed the hungry as a way of talking about the fact that in your kingdom one day there will be none who starve. May we clothe the poor, Lord, talking about how you have always been our covering, you are currently our covering, and how one day, Lord, in your kingdom there will be none who lack. Father, may we, may we just hold loosely the things that you've given us and hold tightly to you and your word, even as we see this example, you, Jesus, doing the same thing. May we live according to your word, and more than anything, Father, may we know that we have a Father who loves us, who cares for us, who would send his son to die for us, who has adopted us, and who delights to give this little flock to the kingdom of heaven. Father, may we believe that, and may that belief translate into how we live our lives. May we not be hypocrites on any level, and may you empower and lead your church. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.